Today, the bees are a buzzin'. Yes, it's all about the bees, the burn, the berry, and the beef. We got more beefs, because Barry hates everyone and everything and wants you to know it. We, we, we go back to another John Byrne gripe about the esteemed Todd McFarlane. We serve it all up because it's all about the beefs. And these guys have beefs. And we are here to share and analyze and uh, dissect the beefs for, for your pleasure and mine. And we do it all with a big fat smile on our face on today's all-new observations. Hey, everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to another edition of Rob Observations. Welcome to our latest episode where we continue the comic book feuds. These episodes seem to really get people engaged, and that's why we do them. It's fun to go back and, uh, and, and, and revisit some of these beefs. If I could have called these episodes the beefs, I would have called them the beefs. But uh, just so you know, your host, myself, Mr. Liefeld, I have 37 years in this comic book business, made a lot of comics, drawn a lot of comics, written a lot of comics, published a lot of comics, been around the block. Uh, I have given you characters uh, such as Deadpool, Cable, Domino, X-Force, started Image Comics with my partners and just had a blast, just had an absolute blast all along the way, making comics and more comics and more comics. Uh, We are just so excited that you are along the ride with us today, again, as we revisit the comic book feuds. I just want to say right off the top of, uh, of the show, thank you for all of you who took to heart one of our last episodes from last year. And as we closed out 2022, I felt the need to ask you all to go frequent your comic store more. You know, whatever you could spend, whatever you could buy, whatever gifts maybe that the comic store could provide for you for yourself, for your friends, for your family. I just, you know, I am so humbled. So many of you reached out to me, have, have messaged, DM me and told, told me that you did just that. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, if you want that clubhouse around, you can't take it for granted. I have, uh, taken it for granted over the last few months. I had gone less frequently, spent less money, but I'm now, uh, two months in two solid months in to being a back, back being a regular customer, consumer, and just trying to spread the love around. And again, we can't ask these comic stores to be uh, the people who fulfill our hopes and dreams and not frequent them. And again, sometimes, you know, you just never know how much that high high end item is going to go. My own, you know, stores have told me, Rob, you know, trade paperbacks, omnibuses, the reason we, we love them, it's like selling 10, 20 comics. You know, there's the there's the three ninety nine, the four ninety nine. God knows these price points are are getting so much higher. But I mean, so is everything. But but still, comic books that I grew up with were twenty cents, were twenty five cents. Ob- obviously, that hasn't been the case for a long long time now. But when you see them at four ninety nine, five ninety nine, seven ninety nine, it's just it's it's steep. And 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 I understand it. But still, you know, you buy a trade paperback, a nice hardcover. I mean, that's the equivalent of buying five, six, seven. In some cases, depending on the collection, you know, 10, 12 comics. So thank you in advance. And uh, the, the retailers always need us uh, to, to, to support them because we won't have them if we don't tend to them and if we don't take care of them. So again, thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shed again a little, light, a little light before we rejoin last week's um, comic book feuds. 
the celebrity comic book feuds. <laughs> uh, here's the deal. These words were spoken and I am sharing them with you for one reason and one reason only to entertain you. This entire podcast is to celebrate comic books, celebrate the medium of comic books, the characters of comic books, the stories behind your favorite characters, my favorite characters. I started this show walking you through my own collection. That first year is so much you are walking alongside me. And then ever since it's been, you know, going back and forth between different subjects, uh, instances, events that, that I've either experienced firsthand or, or been witness to, uh, friends I've made along, along the way. Again, the most important person I ever met with in comics, the kindest person that, that I ever encountered in comics who I broke bread with, who I visited their home, uh, bought artwork from, listened to stories, took my studio to visit as well, was Jack the King Kirby. I've shared those you know, stories and instances with you. Uh, some of it sometimes is going to get personal like that. Sometimes I'm going to read these interviews, and I'm, I'm going I'm to bookmark them and, and come back to them because I know you are going to be extremely entertained. And one of the things that, as I shared with all of you these last two uh, feud episodes, because you're like, well, I've, you, you got a lot of feuds kicking off, you know, this this brand new year. Look, feuds are a part of almost every aspect of of the culture, of, of especially pop culture. You can uh, Google right now the, the the five musicians John Lennon didn't like and and who feuded with who who he had beefs with and and you're going to come up with Frank Zappa you're going to come up with Joan Baez you're going to you're going to read about Paul McCartney they had real bad blood for a long time the end of the Beatles was ugly it wasn't pretty and funny and 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 all and all smiles it had some uh it had some some serious you know animosity between these guys and so that's interesting that's entertaining i don't ever like really take a side or take a beef uh, with, with, with the person. And yet those opinions, when you sit down with an interviewer, knowing that you're going to have what you say published or run on a monitor, you know, if it's a video interview on a news channel, or, I mean, especially in the nineties, I was asked to sit with all manner of different news outlets. I was on good morning America. Uh, I had an entire segment on Good Morning America about image, about young blood, about my proposal to my wife. Uh, I've 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 sat with you know Entertainment Tonight. I've I've sat with Entertainment Weekly. There was all manner of different kind of shows about comics on Sci Fi Channel. You know you watch you watch your words because you got to be be careful because you you're, you're considering how is this going to come across? How is this going to come back at me? I would say that me and my generation. Uh, did a really good job. The only time I felt like one of my generation uh, lost his shit, and I've shared it with you, is the Liefeld versus McFarland feuds where Todd talked to the Comics Journal, and it's when he just threw everything but the kitchen sink at me. Uh, I'm a, I, you know, it's it's the, and I'm smiling as I tell you this because I go, hey, that's good. He said I robbed and I lied. I, my my parents named me appropriately. That, that's the best one. He he was punching down on that one. And uh, I always, I always thought, man, he. I wonder how long he'd been holding on to that. But he invoked a bunch of, you know, honestly, kind of false instances in in that in that interview. There was stuff that he invoked uh, that that was on on the fantastical side of 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 creativity and kind of making up instances that didn't occur. But he was mad. 
and he went to the re- he he wanted to come across mad. He deliberately wanted to be angry and pissy. And uh <laughs> I love that word pissy. And certainly when I share with you some of these uh guys who were our peers, the John Burns, the Barry Windsor Smiths, and I and I share with you their grievances, the way that they would um take out their frustration about again, it, it's always Todd, Rob, Jim. You know, except with Barry, it's like he just wouldn't stop. And you're going to see more of this today. I had to split it into two because it gets so out of control. And and we've already given you the background on Barry Smith, Barry Windsor Smith, his fame and notoriety and his um, uh, just accomplishments with Conan and Wolverine are legendary. And, and under no circumstances would I ever ask anyone, because I certainly don't. I don't not enjoy their work just because they have opinions I don't, I don't agree with. Uh, John Byrne can hate me until the cows come home, and I will always cherish his work, love his work, collect his work, period. Full stop. Barry Smith, y- you think him slamming Jim Lee and, and saying he didn't like working for Wildstorm and he thought the characters were terrible stopped Jim from buying the next Barry Smith book? It didn't. I guarantee you, he's a fan. I'm a fan. We're all fans. Uh, you know, some of the shots that he takes in this interview, at least, at least John B. Semmel was alive. But when I get to this stuff, uh, uh, Jack, poor Jack was, was gone when he mocked him kind of, uh, unceremoniously in, in this comics journal interview. That was the latter part of the part one of this Barry versus the world. Cause it really feels like he's, he's versus the world, but he was a tremendous talent and i know he's retired now in his last work he did with fanographics the same company that published his interview you know almost 30 years ago 28 years ago it's called monster again i can't recommend it highly enough the last third of the book is drawn differently because it was drawn over 20 years and he does show wear and tear and the finesse and uh just the draftsmanship is is looks like that of a man struggling to finish it but it's still worth it. The the there, there's 200 amazing plus pages in that 300. It it is uh, in those 300 pages. It's it's amazing. I like watching the evolution of of my favorite art. Certainly, Frank Miller doesn't draw now the way he drew when I fell in love with him on Daredevil. But I've I followed every iteration of his style from Daredevil to Ronan to Dark Knight, uh, back back to to Daredevil, back to then to Sin City. And then, then all throughout the '90s, all his Sin City work, then 300, and and everything he's done since back to Dark Knight, the Dark Knight sequel. Uh, again, I, I've enjoyed watching him evolve. You you can take different things from everybody at different snapshots in their career, where they're at, what they're thinking, how they're approaching it. Again, at this point, Barry was pretty fair. Barry Windsor Smith was extremely revered at the time that he gave this interview. And it's it's always been shocking how ridiculously cranky he came across. But uh, <clears throat> we're going to pick up, and, and I do need to kind of uh, tell you who John Buscema is all over again now. There's an episode of this podcast called uh, Mount, My Mount Rushmore, and John Buscema's on it. John Buscema, I've said this again and again and again, and it'll, it'll never not be this way. John Buscema is the finest uh, illustrator of monthly comics. In, in terms of his mastery of the form, figure, faces, expression, backgrounds. Uh, he was just gesture. He was just amazing. Beautiful women, beautiful men, beautiful character, like, like exaggerated characteristics on, on creatures, on, on, you know, 
kind of secondary characters. Uh, he there's a character he didn't he drew that that I didn't enjoy. His most fantastic work, in my opinion, lies somewhere between the Conan stuff that he truly loved doing because it was more uh, the fantasy stuff he expressed over and over. You know, was where his head was at more. And he even said, like, it, you know, instead of drawing the density of 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 downtown Manhattan in in a battle that the Fantastic Four are having in the middle of the streets of New York City, it's he he would rather have a fantasy landscape like somewhere in the Hyborian Age of Conan, uh, whether it was the mountains, the valleys, the jungles, the forests, wherever he depicted so many uh, on on pirate ships on the open seas. That's you know, every single thing that John did looked consummate it, it looked amazing uh he 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 just brought the same quality to whatever subject his silver surfer work uh was is among the finest again up there with conan but there is no jo- bad like john Buscema work his breakdowns the kind of stuff that I, I i own pages of his breakdowns i got them uh in in the 90s entire issues of conan and then you see everything that anyone any of his finishers needed and back in the day they were giving a lot of his breakdowns to these beautiful this this class of um spanish and filipino artists that came over to the states their work became exposed and they got agents and they got work but they weren't the level of storyteller that a kirby and a busema was so john busema would lend these a, a step further than gestures you know they they would they were they were classic breakdowns Full gesture, some faces, you know, the waving of the hair, the the indication of weaponry and backgrounds, but nothing detailed and certainly nothing fully rendered. And then he would give it to these Rudy Nabriz, uh, Alfredo Alcala, and uh, were just a couple of these amazing finishers. Neil Adams himself, another guy on my Mount Rushmore, who is like the one of the best illustrators to ever tell comics where Buscema has an edge is his storytelling. John's storytelling and staging was perfect. And he would tell you he got so much of it from Kirby, but what he put on top of Kirby was this Frank Frazetta level, uh, Hal Foster figure, you know, Bern Hogarth figure work. Neil took faces and rendering and expressions and, 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 and a style of realism even further. And so it was fun when Neil would actually ink John and when I would, you know, speak to Neil Adams in 2014, 2015, 2016, when I would bend his ear. And it's one of the reasons I wanted Neil to ink me on uh, my my final chapter of Snake Eyes when I did my my G.I. Joe miniseries a couple of years back. It's because, man, I just, Neil finishing, you know, some of the greats in our business, whether it was Ross Andrew on Superman, uh, Spider-Man, or whether it was uh, John Buscema on on Conan or, or, or Tarzan, he, he finished him on both of those. Uh, or Gil Kane on Conan or Gene Colan, Neil would would say to me, he told me that John Buscema was one of his favorite. He loved because everything was there. It was all so solid that all you had to do was just kind of have fun and maybe render it in a different manner because you didn't, you certainly didn't have to work about, uh, worry, worry about any of the figure drawing or the faces being off even a little. John was that good. His breakdowns were so great. Later on, Tom Palmer on the Avengers was finishing him off breakdowns. John was also a guy who proudly could do uh, three books in a month. So I've heard him do two books in a week. Uh, he was a powerhouse. He, he, 
after Jack Kirby, Marvel was was built on the shoulders of John Buscema. It's the shoulders of of really Jack Kirby and John Buscema over a decade that built it into the powerhouse that it was. Following Kirby, John Buscema took over the Fantastic Four. John Buscema took over the Avengers. John Buscema did Silver Surfer, did Namor, did Conan. He did Thor. Uh, he he pinch hitted and then made his own incredible you know imprimatur on these runs after Kirby left and went to DC Comics and even before then he was just always uh, uh, producing a tremendous amount of work. So I need to tell you that before I get into the Barry Windsor Smith of it all because Barry, it, I remembered him taking shots at all the image guys. That was like muscle memory to me. I remember Rob Liefeld bubblegum rappers, Jim Lee learning to draw, uh, our, our work being pap. <laughs> it was this other stuff. Now, here's the deal. What, 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 what you need to know is what Barry was working on at the time was a new book, uh, Storyteller, that was going to feature different short stories. It's a, it's a f- format that artists love because we want to do a fantasy story, do a science fiction story, do a superhero story all under the same, you know, uh, all between the, the same cover and with the same two staples. But traditionally, fans don't like what's called an anthology style of of comic book they reject it but but barry had embraced this uh format for his latest work and it was all also larger not quite treasury edition but more of a magazine size and fanographics was publishing it i also have to correct something i said earlier uh in the previous uh barry windsor smith barry versus the world i i mentioned that John J. Muth was part of his studio. That, that I, I got the J wrong. It was Jeffrey Jones. The famous studio that Barry uh, shared was with Bernie Wrightson, Jeffrey Jones, Michael Kaluta. So I, 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 Muth and Jones have similarities to me in their work, but I absolutely got the name wrong. It was Jeffrey Jones who was the fourth part of the studio. So I want to correct that. Not, not, not. Uh, you know, too big to 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 tell you when I blurted out the wrong name. And uh, the wrong individual. So before we get into this, Storyteller was the book. And one of the features in Storyteller was called The Young Gods. And it was completely Barry doing Jack Kirby. Now, if you can believe that, you know, he had just kicked Kirby in the balls in this interview. Uh, again, I, I had shared it with you that, that he, you know, he, he talked about how you could take different appendages uh, away from the work uh, that, that, that Jack was doing. And uh, and not know what it was, because he was you know Jack J- Jack's thighs and arms and uh, you know uh, uh, w- w- were indiscernible from other parts. Here I've got the quote again. It says, "If you separated one of Captain America's li- legs and put it all on its own, this is again him speaking about Jack Kirby's art. If you separated one of Captain America's legs and put it all on its own, just one single leg, no foot, no pelvis, and put it on a blank piece of paper, you'd be hard pressed to figure out what the damn thing was." I'd it would look like a sausage from Mars. Uh, and, and up here he says, uh, you know, Jack knew the human figure. He knew dimension and perspective. He'd drawn in many styles, but during his heyday, and again, he's talking about Jack in his heyday, in the 1960s, when he would draw a leg or an arm, you only knew it was a leg or an arm because it was either coming off a shoulder or coming out of a pelvis. So yeah, not, that, not the kindest thing that he would be saying here. He then talks of the fact that his new work is uh, very much in the Kirby tradition. He says, my new title for Storyteller, Young Gods, is a direct homage to Jack Kirby. And if you look at, I'm looking at some of the pages in this interview. 
from Young Gods. It's got what we call the Kirby Crackle all around it, and his characters are blockier purposely, trying to invoke uh, the Jack Kirby form, the same form that he was saying would be different appendages would look like sausage separated uh, a minute ago. So, he, you know, Barry is, is a very strange cat. A uh, couple of people, after I put up part one of this, uh, were, were very kind to contact me and confirm confirm that the Marvel editorial offices, imagine what I'm reading to you right now. And Barry coming in on a rainy day. I say rainy day because once he gets inside, he's not going, he's not leaving. Uh, <laughs> he's not leaving the offices for a while. He's going to put his umbrella down, take off his raincoat and find, you know, comfort in hanging around each of the offices. I can tell you from my own experience going up to the Marvel offices in the 80s and the 90s before Image Comics, it was fun going into Terry Shoemaker's office who edited Marvel Comics Presents and a couple other titles. And that was down the hall and, and, and around the bend. And that was uh, not too far from Tom DeFalco, the editor-in-chief's office. And then go sit in Bob Harris' office who had the office all the way at the end uh, of, of the hallway, a j- just on the other side of the hallway wall of the Ramita Raiders where all the assistants uh, who would do touch-up and paste-up and a lot of production work were. And and visiting Bob Harris' office and hanging out in it. And, and I, I was lucky that there were always sunny days, but there was one winter day and it was cold outside. It wasn't raining. But yeah, once you're inside, you just kind of want to hang around and go from office to office and visit visit with Mark Gruenwald, pop into Jim Salakrup, who was, who was working with Todd and Eric at the time doing doing Spider-Man. You know, now on the other floor was the, 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 you know, more of the executives higher ups. And we certainly, you know, went up there when we were leaving Image Comics as, as has been so famously reported on. Uh, and, and we informed them, them that, that, that we were on our, on our way out. And that was the, 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 the much larger office of, of uh, publisher, Terry Stewart. But on the editorial level, it was fun to hang around. So can you imagine? Again, some of these editors have confirmed since the first part of this went out, have said that when Barry would drop off pages, especially during that Weapon X stage, and the, guy, and, and the stuff is fantastic, right? It's just fantastic. And during that time, he was also doing the X-Men, multiple issues of the X-Men, X, issues of X-Men with Wolverine, great gratuitous Wolverine battles with Lady Deathstrike. He did beautiful issues with Storm and Forge called Life Death. Um, I mean, the guy was really delivering, did a lot of New Mutants covers. Well, two of these editors confirmed that they would refer to him as Barry Windbag. Barry Windbag. Because imagine the guy in this interview coming and sitting in your... All these offices had an extra chair for talent, extra couch that you could get situated on and face your editor who was always generally behind his desk. And the, edit, and the assistant had a desk adjacent to his desk. So you would be facing them on their, you know, like I said, sofa chair or sofas and discussing, you know, art, looking at stuff in the drawer, discussing deadlines, story ideas, whatever. But imagine if Barry Windsor Smith walked in and they said, Rob, the stuff that you're saying that he was saying in that interview, imagine listening to that um, in person and how everything, (laughs) everyone in the business was failing and not being held to his high standards. So again, this is part and parcel of who this gentleman is. He is talking about his new new Kirby book, but right before that, um, he is talking about uh <clears throat> he talks about Jim Steranko who also had a bit of a Kirby clone-esqueness to him followed Jack on both uh Shield and Captain America but very quickly the thing that separated Jim Steranko from everyone was a next level design sense 
where he was incorporating all sorts of like different poster and advertising elements on the page, uh, really pushing the boundaries of storytelling and 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 page design. And if if you're not familiar with Jim Steranko's Shield and Cap, again, run out, check those out immediately. But he's talking about how it was a miracle that Jim was able to break out from the mold. And he mentioned in the first interview how an artist named Don Heck had basically sold his soul and become a hack, his words, not mine, uh, trying to emulate Jack Kirby, which he assumed without any knowledge or any proof, he assumed he was told to emulate Jack Kirby. And that's what cost him his soul artistically. Well, uh, the interviewer says to Barry Smith, he says, you again, reading directly from this magazine, you're bringing up Steranko made me think of something vis-a-vis Kirby. People like you and I can see the virtues of Kirby, I think, whereas a lot of people can't. If you only look at the surface, it's obvious why his virtues may be difficult to see because there's something so adolescent about it. So again, Gary Groth, the interviewer, is calling Kirby's work adolescent. Uh, he's saying on the surface, it's hard to get past the adolescence, but he's saying there's something underneath there, right? He says, but it seems to me, as soon as you get into a kind of uh, attenuated Kirby, like Steranko, Buscema, and others, the displaced virtues of Kirby just crumble. It has to be absolute Kirby or nothing at all. Windsor Smith says, yes, I agree. Perhaps if Steranko had continued to create comics instead of becoming a soft porn distributor. (laughs) Oh, shit. He's literally over here. saying um just talking glowingly about about Steranko and and, uh, uh, and then says before he had become a soft porn distributor yeah, again uh, so so now we've got you know Barry Windsor Smith uh takes on Don Heck Jack Kirby Todd McFarlane Rob Liefeld uh Jim Lee and we're only getting started here uh Jim Steranko perhaps if instead of becoming a soft porn distributor, if he'd pulled away from the early influences of his and become a great in the field for real in, instead of his own head. Uh, wow. Okay, again, you know, uh, uh, just just a lot of not nice things being said here. Um, <clears throat> he says, uh, he, 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 he continues, because I have to turn the page here, and he uh, he says, so, so if he had become really great instead of only great in his own head, uh, he would have given us something. He would have really contributed something in the 60s, whereas Buscema's applications of Kirby are completely vapid and empty, Barry says. And that's the thing that really caught me um, off guard. He says, again, he, to continue, he says, but at least Steranko offered something to us in the 60s, whereas Buscema's applications of Kirbyism were utterly vapid and empty. And the interviewer says, well, Steranko's work displayed more ingenuity than Buscema's even then, but the way I see it is, everything we find admirable about Steranko's work came from outside Steranko, whereas everything we love about Kirby comes from Kirby. Then Windsor Smith says, well, it's true, I'm walking a bit of a fine line here, because one of my new titles for Storyteller is a direct homage to Kirby. You can tell by the title, it's Young Gods. Hey, Barry, I can tell just by looking at it. I don't, need, I don't need the title. This is my insert commentary, actually looking at pages of Young Gods. You can tell just by looking at it, he's doing a Kirby homage. Uh, but my pacing and acting technique in this book is derived from Jack. I started Young Gods two years ago from an entirely different storytelling point of view. But after I completed nearly two stories, I realized the only way I wanted to do the material was as a tribute to Jack. 
The characterization is not Kirby. The characters are very much my own, but the pacing panel layouts and the backgrounds are a synthesized Jack Kirby. I think I'm doing him justice with this because I believe I understand Jack's work deeply. Um, so, you know, uh, again, uh, Barry, Barry with a greater understanding than the rest of us. Uh, <clears throat> he then, Barry talks about his early work. Now, Avengers 100 uh, was a book that I got from a, a friend of ours. My family, uh, a friend had a, had, had a son named Jay, and he had a copy of Avengers 100 that his dad had had. And Avengers 100 is a revelation. They all gather over the first couple of pages, and there's a double pager of just the, Avengery, of the Avengers, Iron Man, Hawkeye, Hulk, Cap, Thor, Wasp, they're all gathering under a tree. And it is magnificent. And again, kudos to Barry Windsor Smith. It's a slightly downshot of bird's eye view, and it is fantastic, epic. Um, I went and got a Tony copy of Avengers 100, a really nice one for myself, uh, you know, 30 years ago, because I just wanted to have a really nice version, because that book, the entire book, and they battle, um, I believe, Ares, Hercules, one of the, one of the Greek you know, the God of war in that book. It's, it's so, it's so wonderful, but Barry is talking and he says, uh, uh, I honestly believe the comic books I was creating had real value to them. Not all of them. Mind you, Avengers 100 didn't rise really above a street level. He says, but I had pride in something about those books like Avengers Conan, Dr. Strange and stuff that even now I forget my drawing was not always the greatest, but I leave my story, but I believe my storytelling had integrity. He says, I had a background in books and plays. We all know how important it is to have background in books and plays as far as Barry is. Um, hell, he even read Steinbeck when he was 14. And intensity, uh, I do not see intensity in modern Marvel and image comics, no matter how abstracted it might be for the sake of the superheroes. I just can't see it. Uh, so anyway, we're winding up here because we're going to get to the, uh, the John Buscema. He's going to work through John Buscema, but he's going to go via... A gentleman that needs no introduction. You've all heard of him. You should have heard of him at some point. Paul McCartney and the Beatles. So get, get ready for this. He says, John, uh, Barry says, <laughs> got to get this in here. The, right, right before when he says, uh, no matter how abstracted it might be for the sake of the superhero genre, I don't see it. The intensity, he mentions Marvel and Image. He says, when I read the intensity of Alan Moore's Miracle Man, I am thrilled by his diverse experience and knowledge. You know, the stuff you don't find in Youngblood. Hey, thank you, Barry. Another, another, another shot. Can't, can't stop. Um, and then Gary Groth goes, good God, is it possible that all these people grew up reading the, um, reading comics in the eighties? And Barry says it is. And, uh, and he says, I know nothing about comics from the eighties again, cause he was gone, not around until late eighties. He said, uh, weren't comics in the eighties dominated by John Buscema clones. And so then Gary says, I'm not sure. I just think it was all garbage. So. <laughs> The interview says, I'm not really sure if it was John B. Semiclones, but you know, it, it, it's just garbage. Then he says, You really, then Windsor Smith says, You really don't see evidence of John B. Semicloning anymore. Now, John, who was a very good draftsman, was the most faded penciler the comics had seen at the time. But for a man to have that kind of talent, that capacity to draw or to, cartoon, or to cartoon and have no intellectual basis and seemingly put nothing of himself into those stories that you can come away with smiling. That, to me, is a bizarre anomaly. Again, Barry Windsor Smith saying that for all his talent, Buscema injected nothing of himself. I go back and tell you that John Buscema is on most people, especially my age, uh, 
they're they're Mount Rushmore of comics. He he's he's fantastic. He can draw Barry Windsor Smith under the table. Barry has prettier rendering and cross hatching, a style that he developed that, that that's certainly under the uh, you know the category of eye candy. In Image Comics, we gave you eye candy. I've told you about the Will, Will's Portacio. We all did the fade, you know, a bunch of a series of, 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 of tight lines that would both um, get more spacing in between them and then get tightened, you know, from the top, then, 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 then separate the lines, then, then, then make them tighter. That was called the fade. You saw it on every shoulder, on some pecs, on, on biceps. You saw it all over. And I bit it. Jim Lee bit it. Mark Silvestri bit it. Eric bit it. Everyone bit it. Okay. Um, the rendering is the candy. We love it. We love good good rendering. John uh, Barry Windsor Smith continues, and he says, uh, "You know, John was a naturally talented man. I always compare him to Paul McCartney. Well, where Paul McCartney was obviously the best musician in the Beatles. You know, there was nothing he couldn't do. No instrument he couldn't play. He had a fantastic voice as regards quality and range. He's a terrific writer. He was an he was all around top notch, and yet Paul McCartney's work is utterly vapid. He wrote some really terrific tunes every now and then. I have to admit, like Hey Jude, I mean, God was sitting on his shoulder, obviously, when he wrote Hey Jude, but in general, Paul McCartney gives you nothing. <laughs> now, here's the funny thing. I came to Beatles, the Beatles, um, my, my whole life I grew up and they were on the radio. They had already become an oldie but goodie, and there were several oldie but goodie stations out here in Southern California, K-Earth 101 being one of them, and their, their music was everywhere. Their movies were on TV, all of their concert films and their concept movies, um, and obviously they, they had John Lennon you know, was shot when I was 12 or 13, and it interrupted television. It was the news. It was everywhere. It was a shock. The Beatles were... A big deal. Paul McCartney had already broken off. He'd had his James Bond um, theme, you know, with uh, with wings, live and let live and let die. Is that it? Yeah. Anyway, um, all his wing stuff, silly love songs. These his songs were everywhere on the radio. He was known to me outside of the Beatles, but I knew of him as the Beatles. So here he is uh, Barry Windsor Smith saying he gives you nothing, and then then of course our interviewer uh, says, "Yep, just fluff." That's his response to Paul McCartney gives you nothing, just fluff. The, 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 the thing that I was going to add is when I started to share a studio with Jim Valentino, one of the things Jim Valentino said to me immediately was, I have a huge Beatles collection. I want to share it with you. And he made it a point of making cassette tapes of all of his different Beatles uh, collection, the albums, the LPs. It was such a generous, sweet, um, kind thing to do. And he, and there were bootlegs and, um, you know, un, 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 uh, I don't want to say, uh, like, like pirated Beatles songs, um, tracks that weren't finished. He, he, he is such for my, my money, Jim Valentino was the biggest Beatles fan I had ever met. And still to this day, that was his youth. And so Joy and I went out to Palm Springs one weekend. My wife, we weren't married yet, but we went out to Palm Springs to visit my grandparents. And I said, hey, I just got all these cassettes from Jim Valentino. And so the entire drive, it's 90 minutes both ways. Uh, and then all around Palm Springs while we were there that weekend, all we did was listen to all these different cassette tapes that Jim had given me. And then on the weekend, uh, I mean, uh, the next week after the weekend, when I went back in, I was like, Jim, thank you. Oh my gosh, I had never listened to all of the albums in depth. Now you got to understand in 1989, I'm 21 years old. Okay. I, I'm 21 slash 22 about to hurt 
um, turn 22, but very young to have the uh, complete Beatles, you know, uh, education. So again, when somebody takes on the Beatles as they do here, I, I just, I'm, I'm so amused. Saw, saw Paul McCartney uh, every night that he was at Angel Stadium in 1993 uh, with my buddies. We all, we had great seats. I, I made sure I had like front section, front row. Uh, he had been touring and would, it was the first time that he was agreeing to do the Beatles songs again. He was going to do all the famous Beatles songs because he hadn't been doing that in a while. So yeah, big fan. So then Barry Windsor Smith continues after they call, say that he give after he says Paul McCartney gives you nothing. And again, Hey Jude is only good because God was sitting on his shoulder that day. And then the interviewer says, yeah, just fluff. He continues and says, he's the sweet tooth of music. And yet his partner, John Lennon, who could not play as well, could not sing as well, wrote some very good songs, but certainly wasn't as prolific as Mark McCartney. But John Lennon, just like Kirby, still stands up, according to Barry. And he says, there's an almost inexplicable value to what he was doing. I say inexplicable, but you could always try to point out what it all was. But to agree, it is inexplicable. If you're touched with something, a vision, a hard-edged vision, perhaps even a soft vision, as long as you've got vision, as long as you've got vision and you can send it out, you can project it, that's what Kirby could do with aplomb. It's what John Lennon did. It's what a lot of people did. I'm just using two popular icons right now. So in the case of John Buscema, he could certainly draw a human figure finer than Jack Kirby, but there was no valid intensity to what he was doing whatsoever. Here it comes. We've heard this enough in the first one. Get ready. Here it comes. It was just pap. And now, and that's all, that's another word for it's just shit. That's his English, you know, it's just pap is, it's just shit. And now, just recently, I heard that Busama has retired. It took me a few seconds to understand that. How does one artist retire? One turns 65 years of age and says to the wife, well dear, dear, well, dear, time to hang up the old pencil sharpener. My time is done. How can a real artist retire from being an artist? Um, I told you at the top of this, Barry is now retired. He's alive. And after his last one, he announced he has retired. Is this getting better and better as I read this interview to you? Time is, is sometimes the best thing when looking back on some of these things. So he's completely banging on Bissema for retiring. How can a real artist retire from being an artist? I understand John Romita Sr. is retiring because he was the art director at Marvel. It's a job. You get to a certain age and you leave that job and you go fishing, but John Bissema is an alleged artist and you can't retire from art. So maybe John is retiring from drawing comics. Is that it? Maybe that's the case. John's comics weren't art anyway. Oh, is John now going to pursue real art in his latter life? Does John confuse paint painting? At an easel with brushes and oils, with the act of creating art? Buscema has been turning out comic books for 30 or more years. Why didn't he make those art? Look at his work, even the Silver Surfer books that were among his most facile and pretty, but you won't find art among them. You'll find journeyman talent wasted on a field that prefers his kind to any kind. Whoa! Man, just leveled old John here, who, again, could draw him under the table, uh, and, and twice on Tuesdays. Um. John didn't need all the pretty rendering to be awesome. And people like, again, all the greats clamored to work over John Buscema. Gary Grothin, I mean, I mean, again, that is just, I mean, again, I'm not, how can a real artist retire implying he's not a real artist? Then did he, did he mistake, you know, the act of painting with making art, you know, the 30 years of work that he did, why didn't he make them art? Look, even his best work was, I started off saying, you know, the Silver Surfer stuff. 
It was his most facile and pretty, but you won't find art. You'll find journeyman talent wasted on a field that prefers, prefers that kind to any kind. Oh, he said, uh, Gary Gross says, well, I actually attended a chalk talk that John Buscema gave the Marvel staff in the 80s, probably around 1982. And Windsor Smith said, this was at Marvel? And the interviewer says, yes, Marvel's office is in New York. The room was full of inkers and pencilers. And Barry Windsor Smith says, what the heck were you doing there, Gary? He goes, I'm not sure how I got in there. First of all, it was obviously before Marvel barred me from their offices. They all laugh. Uh, but somehow I whittled my way in and I taped it. And Windsor Smith says, is that so? He goes, and it was the, here, here, Gary Groth above it all. You can see just egg, they, they egg each other on, but it's published. It's part of history. Gross says, uh, it was the most appalling thing I'd ever seen. It could have been subtitled how to become a hack by John Buscema. He was giving lessons on how to take shortcuts and how to do work quickly. Barry Windsor Smith says, oh, fuck. Really? He says the most appalling thing about it was that it was done in all sincerity. He really thought he was teaching people valuable job skills. And then Barry Windsor Smith says, some sort of like, sort of like the live version of how to draw comics the Marvel way. Groth says, yes. And then here's the coup de grace. Windsor Smith says, a book that should be burned. So how to draw comics the Marvel way is the single best, uh, just visually, a, a, a visual Bible of how to approach making great comics. And John Buscema will show you, show you like there's two instances, one with the Avengers being attacked and another with two let's say lawyers or accountants in an office, and he shows you both times. These, here's a competent way to tell this. Now here's the Marvel way. And he shows you dramatic angles, uh, worm's eye view, so the camera is lower, uh, bird's eye view, you know, a higher angle. Um, it is, it, I bought this with, with all my borrowed allowance money. My mom agreed to finance me buying How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way, the original blue hardcover edition that came out. Um, at the bookstore in the Anaheim Mall on the Friday nights that we would go there in 1978. And I ran home and it was my Bible for years as it was for Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, uh, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, everyone that came after. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a revered tome. And here Barry Windsor Smith saying is, a book that should be burned. I would never ever agree to burning books, you know, but the fucking hell. If there's ever a book that deserved to be burned, it's How to Draw Comics, The Marvel Way. Gary Groth weighs in, says, exactly. Windsor Smith says, I only saw it by browsing through bookstores at the time, but now we have it in the studio as an icon. Ha, 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 he laughs. So I had to sit down. I had to sit down and look at it properly one day, and I was fuming, absolutely fuming. It's a great book with, with, with only the best advice on how to draw, how to draw competently, how to, how to stage pages, um, inking. It's such a phenomenal book. Again. If you can get a hands, your hands on, they've reprinted it several times. I know they did one recently with Umberto Ramos. I'm telling you the John Buscema book is the one to, uh, to, to consume. So he was absolutely fuming. Groth says, I think we've probably said this before, but it's tra tragic that someone with so much craft and skill, Buscema they're speaking of, can apply it to something so vacuous. Vacuous. Ugh. Which means empty. For those of you who don't know, that means something so empty. Windsor Smith said, you just said the word. He has so much craft. If ever anyone was confused, and I know a lot of people are, about the difference between art and craft, and that they do not go together like strawberries and cream, if anybody can really grasp what we're saying here, that is the difference between Kirby and Buscema, there's your bloody fat dividing line. It is the 70 lane highway right between the two, the difference between art and craft. We said it here first. Not sure you said it here first, but you said it. 
Gross says, one thing that occurs to me is that what is explicable about art is the craft, and what is explicable about art is the mysterious dimension that you can't put your finger on. Windsor Smith says, yes, the spirit of it. Windsor Smith says, I never saw Jimi Hendrix play. I never saw Jack Kirby draw. These are the two great losses of my life. I would have loved to have been near Jack Kirby physically, not if he was doing a convention drawing, but at the real times, when he was really creating. I'd love to have been present when he invented Silver Surfer and Galactus, when he sang, okay, I'm going to have this big guy that goes around eating planets. And Gross says, yes, just to watch him compose pages. I, I feel it's hilarious because I actually did watch Jack draw pages and it's, um, it, it's just funny to me. Uh, I was able to witness something that Mr. Mr. Windsor Smith uh, wishes he witnessed. Windsor Smith says, yes, and I feel I'd literally be a fly on the wall because he was supposed to be a very outgoing man, but I doubt very much that when he was on that level of creativity that people around him or could catch him uh, or could watch him. So, so Jack's drawing table and anyone who knows Jack, all his friends, all his family, his drawing table was in the middle of the living room. The, the TV was just adjacent. The pool was right outside the, the, the dividing, you know, sliding door to go out to the pool. And he, he was in a very public area. He drew with people around him all the time. Even if it was his wife rocking the chair behind him watching TV, he was not in isolation. He was in the most public part of his house when he drew. And that is where when we encountered him and he said, oh, yeah, this is where it's in. And we, this is where it is. And when you would see encounters of people who went there in the 70s, early 70s, late 70s, when he got out to, you know, uh, uh, Ventura, Sherman Oaks, that, that area where, where, where he lived, um, beautiful house, really high on the hill, tremendous view. Uh, his, his table was right in the most public area of the, of the house. So he gushes over Jack here. And, uh, you know, feels like that uh, after he doubts that he would have been with anyone, that he continues and says, Jack had to have done this all in private. It's just too fucking energetic. It's too, it's too close to genius inside our fields. It's as close as we're going to get for a bloody long time. So again, we have heard Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Barry Windsor Smith take his liberal shots at all of the greats, and yet he can't lay off the image comics. Uh, at the end here, he really never touches on all of his X-Men work. It's like he doesn't want to. He basically says here later on, a few pages later, I did quite a stack of covers for Marvel Comics, none of which I signed, which is true. Many of those comics covers, those new mutants and those X-Men are, do not have even BWS on them. He said, uh, I did quite a stack of covers for Marvel, none of which I signed, mostly for the New Mutants book. I also produced the occasional comic that got published, but the crappy money from those X-Men's and stuff paid the rent, not much else. But what I was doing behind the scenes was writing, learning to write. I've never written a play, but I shouldn't be surprised if I'm capable of it because I've read enough plays and I understand the process and have a deep love for the theater. Well, bully for you, my friend, because uh, again, this is just him telling us how well instructed and well versed he is. And certainly once again, Jack, I mean, Barry, Barry's a great artist. Really? Um, again, it took about 15 years for him to stick the landing and become the guy that stormed comics and became an overwhelming, like, uh, topic of, of admiration with the intricate rendering that he developed for himself. But his first act as a Kirby clone, and then his frustration early on on Conan, 
was was the journeyman that he says John Buscema was when he comes back. Machine Man, the X-Men, Life, Death, the Wolverine issues, Weapon X, and everything that followed was staggering. The studio stuff was great, but it really wasn't known to the comic book community at the time. It was, again, trying him trying to make a way in a finer art uh, category. But down here, he says, uh, Gary Gross says, it seems to me that one of the essential requirements of a good comic is the seamlessness of the writing and the drawing where the writing and drawing in fact become a single component if you know what i mean so we're going to wrap it up with this as barry says yes i think that is the ultimate goal i can draw as flashy as anyone i can draw ten thousand little gadgets and lots of guns and all this sort of shit and say look at my pictures everyone again going back to the old whipping post that is the image comics gang and they're doing their group thing their team thing it seems to me like they're all on stage i know i keep mixing music with art and comics and all that but it's a continuing metaphor for me that they are a group, like a lo- like a rock band on stage, and they're all trying to be louder. Uh, I mean, this is some good stuff. They're all trying to be louder than everyone else. He says, Jim Lee goes up to nine, so McFarlane goes up to 11. Please notice me. I am louder. I play faster. Listen to that guy. He's actually shouting rather than singing because he wants to be heard over the guitars, which are now, all now being played at 11. That's not a concert. That's the perfect word, concert. No one, none of them is in concert. And then, of course, Gary Groth says, that's a perfect analogy, Barry. He goes, yes, I want my characters to be alive to the audience. I want people to care about them. So, yeah, he had to get that one last blow that we're all just on a um, stage trying to... Uh, you know, out, 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 play each other. He then says down here, because he, he's, it, this is just, again, the 90s. How can an order, ordinary person, this is the next paragraph, a civilian out there pick up a copy of fucking Wildcats or something like that and say, oh yeah, this is engaging my sensibilities as a human being. Because the very essence of the thing implies that you've got to read it. It has word balloons, but who in the adult world wants to get tied into doing a bunch of things of vacuous, <laughs> vacuous superheroes firing giant guns at each other? Comics can be stories about real people, no matter what colors they wear. So again, he's just uh, real, real busy, um, you know, just kind of demeaning the stuff that had really connected with the audience. And I know this because so many of you had told me how much our work I have learned in the last two decades as I have met so many of you and you've grown up and you introduced me to your sons and daughters and your families and your fiancés and your wives and your boyfriends and you tell me you're the comics you did meant so much to me and I understand that because the comics of John Byrne and Walt Simonson and Frank Miller and Jim Starlin and Howard Jacob mean that to me so I get that I understand that when I see that in your eye and I see that we are that for you which maybe I hadn't really understood that until recently I get it. And what we were doing was having fun. Just like this interview and dissecting it is fun. What we do, and when I approached a page, uh, I'm just trying to have the most fun. And the the truth of the matter is, and what I think is lost here, is uh, what I think is really lost here is I I was re- acclimated with image art because a a collector who has a ton of 90s collectors and there's a there's about three giant collectors that have emerged who are buying 90s art and i am aware and in contact with all of them i get uh i have sold directly to all of them i have uh 
you know, seen many of their collections and I was in the presence of one of these collections. And if you were a fan of 90s art, you would be blown away. Copious amounts of all your favorite artists. Sam Keith, Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson. Did I say that name already? I don't know. Just all of it. Uh, Simon Beasley. When I held these pan- these pages in my hands, even the pages that I did back then, it took me back and I feel like I'd gotten away. There was, I, I saw the effort on the pages to engage you, that every panel, that every page would be special, that the reason that you choose comic books as your escape is to be entertained and excited. And maybe your taste changed, but somehow I, I, I think there's a part of it that's always there. There's, there's a part of me that will always believe that Luke has one shot to destroy the Death Star and that it is crucial that Obi-Wan speaks to him in that moment and tells him to put, put the guidance, uh, you know, the guidance uh, visor away and turn off the guidance system and to just use the force. And that music kicks up. Every time I watch that, it's the first time all, all over. I get caught up. I am nine years old all over again. I'm sitting in a theater wondering, how is this going to work? Everyone else is dead. And then when Darth locks in on him, holy shit. It taps into that youthful spirit, that energy, that awe that I've always had. And so when I see parts of current Star Wars, whether it's, you know, the the best of the stuff like Mandalorian and Andor or some of the just more, you know, I'll say goofiness of like Boba Fett and and even elements of the Obi-Wan. Uh, series. It, it, it's that stuff that still locks me in. I get obsessed. I am so engaged because it's Star Wars. I'm back. I'm back in that Star Wars world. You know, it's Alderaan. It's Tatooine. You know, it's uh, the promise of, of going to all these different worlds within the Star Wars galaxy and these characters. It's the rebellion. It's the empire. When I looked at the pages of the 90s, not only my own, but others, I remembered how much we were competing with each other. So the, the idea that we're all trying to play our guitars over 11, uh, you know, is, is, is in some ways very fitting. But we were, we were, again, very complimentary. We would talk to each other. For me, I would talk to Todd and Eric and Jim Valentino the most. I would talk, probably talk a couple times a week to Jim Lee back then. We were competitive, but we were aware of each other. I, I really never spoke to Mark Silvestri. had huge respect for him, but didn't feel a, a natural connection with him. Didn't know Wells very well at the time. I know him better now, much better. But those were my... Um, so, so, so to me, for, for me to be in constant communication with four of the seven that we would launch with, and so I'm the fifth, so five of us were always talking and always sharing and and you know even Todd would be like oh you guys call me all the time you specifically Rob you don't call me all the time but we would share ideas concepts stuff that we liked we'd compete Eric Larson and I had books that came out the same week for almost a year Amazing Spider-Man and New Mutants came out the same week so we'd compare and Eric was pushing the envelope bigger shots of Spider-Man bigger shots of Venom Mary Jane you know I'd do bigger shots of of, of Cable I'd do bigger shots of the the Mutant Liberation Front of of the uh, of of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants whatever I was drawing we were pushing ourselves to make each page engaging. You chose comics as your escape. And if you're going to pick my comic up off that shelf at that store and buy it, I want you to be thrilled so that you're excited coming back 30 days later. And I think some of that is lost on people like the John Burns of the world, like the Barry Windsor Smiths of the world. Some, some of that magic, you can tell as they give this, it, it, for Barry Windsor Smith, it all has to be about art, art, art. 
You know, John Buscema couldn't possibly have poured himself into those pages. I beg to differ. I, I believe John Buscema was so good that you're just not understanding the the high level of artistry. It is safe to say that Barry Windsor Smith did not do a quarter of work that John Buscema did. John Buscema's output was three quarters, 70% more than, than Barry Windsor Smith, maybe even more, certainly not less. And to do so at such a high level across you know, such an incredible time period because this interview is almost 30 years old. And, and he is saying at the time that Buscema, you know, had been doing it for 30 years old. John did come back. He did, he, like, he did some DC work after this supposed retirement. He did uh, like a, a Stan Lee Superman story for uh, like, what if Stan Lee created Superman at DC Comics? So he was an incomplete retirement when, when Barry is hammering on, on him here. But again, whether it's Don Heck, Paul McCartney, John Buscema, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, Todd. I mean, we are, again, I, I wish I could read that letter that he said he wrote about Heroes Reborn. That would be an absolute scream. The fact that he bemoaned doing work for Jim Lee and Wildstorm and doing Wildstorm Rising, which I bought every copy of and I thought it was great, but apparently it was agony for him. And remember in the last episode, he talked about, there, there, there are no characters here. There are no characters. You know, he needed to make everything poetry and that's fine. And it doesn't change that my admiration for a single line that he produced but again do i put barry windsor smith on my mount rushmore i don't you may that's fine he he there there's certainly arguments to be made he he's not a guy that you couldn't stand up and and you know uh sell a resume for because it's a great resume it's just not as you know in depth and, and and it's certainly not vacuous it's certainly not empty it's certainly uh you know john Buscema's resume is 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 beautiful. It's thick. It's rich. It's powerful. Kirby, it goes without saying. The connector between the John Byrne and the, and the, and the Barry Windsor Smith is uh, the connector between these two is absolutely 100%. The uh, resentment they had for us. One thing you'll notice a through line. They talk about money. If I had the money that they did when I left, I didn't have a lot of money when I quit Marvel. He, he refers to money. He refers to sales. Um, they, they refer to you know, our wide audience and they implored that you were not very bright for liking us as much as you did, because how could you? You should have been reading poetry. But that aside, both in John Byrne, in every editorial, in almost every forward to all of his dark horse work, the stuff that he did under legend, whether it was Danger Unlimited, which was a Fantastic Four knockoff that he did, or The Next Men, which was a really good sci-fi series. In those forewords, whether or in his editorials or in his interviews, he always took shots at Image Comics, and it was always of the two, the variety of they ruined comics. People, the, the 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 reason their books sold was because of a collector's, you know, status buying multiple copies, which I'll get to in a second. Or it's the money. Jim Lee didn't talk about money. Todd didn't. I didn't. No, we had to be asked. We had to be solicited if they wanted to ask about that. But we wanted to sell you characters and story and excitement. And 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 the the thrill that we had in making comics, and I still have that. I I think they still have that as well. I am thrilled to still be giving you comics. It's still an excitement to me as a fifty five year old man. I get crazy excited filling up a page and knowing that it's going to go get colored and go to press and be in between two staples or bound in a hardcover. They were hung up on our sales and on the money because it it was more than. They felt that we should have now in regards to the sales, 
And really, that's it. And I'll get to that more than they should have in a second. But I got to reconnect the thing about Burn always being obsessed and saying that we, the Image Gang, were only successful because of the collector's market. Hey, John, I need to tell you that um, Man of Steel, number one, by DC Comics, 1986, was released in two variant covers. Two covers. One of the most high-profile books to ever be offered in two editions. I also bought multiple copies of every issue. I bought multiple copies of Man of Steel one, two, three, four, five, six of your Supermans, of your action comics. I bought, I've been buying two of everything you did since the X-Men. So that's the same thing that you're accusing of us getting fat on. We just had more people doing it to us than they did to you, but they were doing it to you because I'm one of them and I was doing it. When the NBA salaries, this is in regards to money and these guys always talking about money in the interviews with us at this time and the resentment that, 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 and the envy that is uh, built in. Charles Barkley, about 15 years ago, when the NBA contracts got insane. And you guys, I remember in 1984, 85, uh, reading Dr. Buss was going to pay Magic Johnson a million dollars a year, give him a million dollar contract. Guys, it was the first in the NBA. And it was a big deal. Oh my gosh, Michael, uh, sorry, Magic Johnson got the wrong MJ there. Magic Johnson is going to make a million a year. What? Huge. And, and it was like a lifetime care contract. So as long as Magic played for the Lakers, he was going to make at least a million dollars a year. Well, now obviously you've got guys making 40, 50, 39, 38, I mean, million dollars a year. And Charles Barkley was saying, man, I can't believe money these guys are getting paid. Okay. Uh, he would grouse about it for a couple of years there on TNT. I think somebody finally said, hey, dude, shut up. Like, it just makes you look bitter. And of course, you know, whatever, you know, contracts Charles was getting paled in comparison to the $30 million a year that Michael Jordan was getting to finish up each and every year with the Bulls before he retired. And then the, you know, $40 million a year that guys like Kobe Bryant inked deals for. And, and I mean, there are bigger, obviously, football. In, in, in baseball, it's where the most money is, these $300 million contracts. The guys who played there, who cycled through, who gave 15 years of their life and who can no longer take the mound, hit the ball, you know, th- throw the spiral, those guys, they go, wow, if only I'd been born at that age. That's the kind of mentality that these guys are bringing to us. You know, if only I had made their money, if I had their sales. Well, you didn't. And we can't fixate on that. And it was never about that to us. As I've told you, I was prepared to do 10% of my sales. I just wanted to do it on my own. But the envy of this age towards us is, um, it's vehement. It's, it's, uh, it's very noticeable. And we'll leave these celebrity feuds behind for now. This is going to cool off this Barry Windsor Smith extended version as well as John Byrne. Uh, but I'm going to wrap it up and bring you an update as to our our earlier McFarlane versus Byrne feud as we wrap this all up. But again, to put it all, because I, I do, I have an update on that that you'll find humorous. That is, that is from 2019. It, I mean, from 20, yeah, 2019. So just, I mean, literally, this is four years ago. That's the sound of my glasses. I just knocked my glasses uh, from the table. Here's the deal. Uh, this age, some of them were better at covering their resentment than others, but certainly when you give a 40 page interview where you blast us and you can't stop it, pages would go by, we'd, we'd not be the subject anymore. And then boom, you know, it's, we're all trying to play loud guitars over each other and saying we're better than each other. And then, you know, how can you call by that wildcats comic, that 
piece of crap. You know, it, of course, it, 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 it's got word balloons, but that doesn't mean there's a story. I mean, everything I just read to you, everything that excerpt that I just read to you, there was a resentment uh, that, that some of these guys couldn't cover. And it was something that I think maybe even got them out of bed every day. And it was an anger. And sharing it with you is entertaining, but also enlightening. It should show you. And again, if your favorite guy was Barry Windsor Smith, and uh, you know, I already had a guy who just, you know, upon listening to the first part of the Barry Smith, uh, Barry versus the world, wanted to tell me what a great artist he was. And I said, we mentioned that in the episode. What does that have to do with the episode? It's literally just like he was the most consummate artist, his Conan is Wolverine. Okay, no one's arguing that. The work on the paper is great, but he had a boner, a hard-on, a, a real rager for uh, the image guys, which I think we've covered uh, over these last two episodes. And again, John Byrne. So you got two really big guys. Now, the writers of that era, the Peter Davids, who would go on to debate Todd and you know really make that debate personal. I mean, that's from last season. It's uh, the big debate. Maybe it's a comic book feud. I didn't consult it before I came on, but again, that, that that's from last year. And I thought everybody knew about that because it was such a big deal at the time, but the writers really had it in for us too and didn't hold back. There's more comic feuds to go. But <laughs> Eric Larson has, has a nice juicy one with John Byrne that we'll cover eventually, but we're going to cool these off for a while. But again, get, get this, this capsule, this taster of these two episodes the barry windsor smith obviously in two parts can give you kind of a snapshot of the time and how people felt about the work that we were doing and 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 for most of you the work that you were enjoying and supporting and our books again were paying the rent on a lot of these comic stores to bring it full circle when i asked you to go support comic stores we were driving people to stores people showed up and they bought out youngblood and youngblood too and yes that first year we were having trouble making our deadlines but eventually extreme studios i can speak for myself i know wildstorm I was doing 22 books a month. Wildstorm was doing 12 books a month. Uh, we were doing, doing a great output. We were paying people's bills. You know, people were showing up to buy five extreme titles every month, and that made a difference at the cash register. We drove traffic. We were doing comics that were helping, just like Marvel Comics were paying the bills, just like DC Comics were paying the bills. Image Comics, Extreme Comics were paying the bills. We were contributing to the bottom line of our industry. Not to mention creating jobs and giving opportunities. And again, the reason that we don't crap on all the talent that we launched and think about all the names that we launched, the Dave Finches, the 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 Mike Turners, you know, uh the 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 Todd Knox, the Dan Fragas, the Marat Michaels, the Brett Booths. Uh we launched a lot of talent, a lot of anchors, Norm Ratman, Danny Mickey, um, uh Marlo Alcaiza, Jaime Mendoza, Larry Stucker, John Sabal. You, you've seen all these guys work. We, we, Eric Stevenson, who's been the publisher of Image Comics, came from Extreme Studios. We Chance Wolf from Jim Valentino, who I'm still having ink stuff. He inked stuff on my Snake Eyes. We launched these guys, so we wanted to prop them up and praise them, and we followed them with great glee and excitement and enthusiasm. So that's why the generation that followed didn't piss. The, the generation that we launched, we didn't piss on them the way that we were pissed on by our peers that we, not our peers, our, our, our predecessors that we had looked up to in our inspiration because we wanted you to like them because we had invested in them. We had brought them to you. We had helped, helped curate their talents and given them that platform. So very interesting. Hope you enjoyed these. Hope you were entertained above all things. And I'm going to be right back with a huge, uh, a great way to close all, all this out with a, the most current 
uh, edition of Burn versus McFarlane. So, so here it is. This this is uh, after the Burn McFarlane um, f- comic book feud episode aired. The, the our, our first one back. I was reminded and then provided the direct source from the John Byrne message boards. He has dedicated message boards that he still posts on to this day. And uh, they're the John Byrne forums. And uh, you can, it's very tricky. You may not get membership, but but they're open to the public. You can read them. And I have these snapshots from 2019, from May of 2019. So we're just looking at four years ago. Because that comic book feud, again, the, 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 the one-sided diatribe of John Byrne kind of taking on Todd McFarlane, that uh you know that that's from 1995 and 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 94 and and here there was a sci-fi channel was doing these specials online so you could get them only online but they were on their youtube channel and they did one honoring john Byrne. it was a professional show they interviewed people like todd mcfarland got got clips of them praising john Byrne. talked about john Byrne's you know history and comics the storylines the way he contributed it was it was a huge sci-fi um retrospective and puff beef puff piece so you can find it online john byrne sci-fi it's up well in there todd mcfarlane spoke of the fact that he could uh die a happy guy if only he could uh ink john byrne he that he loved john byrne so much that he would die a happy artist and this is like Todd going, I, I would, I would, I would die a happy artist if I got to ink John Byrne. It's on camera. Todd says this on camera for everybody to see. In John, on John Byrne's forums, I'm looking at it right now. From April through through May, there's commentary. Uh, very on. This is this is insane too. A couple of things here. John Byrne reacts in the forum. And when, when somebody, he, he cut and pasted when someone says, I love seeing all the pros rave about John Byrne. John Byrne then says, I could have lived without McFarlane's snarky reinforcement of the myth of Eric Larson and me engaging in flame wars. We're going to cover that on a future feud, but it's right here. He then says, oh, well, at least I have the power to prevent the toddler. Remember, calling him the toddler. He calls him McFarlane above, but when he calls him Todd, he calls him the toddler. Oh, well, at least I have the power to prevent the toddler from dying a happy artist. Again, Todd on the sci-fi thing. I'd I, 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 I die a happy artist if, if I could ink a John Byrne, like ink a page. At least I have the power to prevent the toddler dying a happy artist. Like, there it is. It's, it's, it's fresh, man. This stuff is not like from 90. It's not 30 years ago. It's, it's four years ago. It's today. It's now. Maybe John will change tomorrow, but as of this most recent posting, then someone says, hey, John, I'm just curious. Did anyone from Image ever try to recruit recruit you between your Namor work and moving to Dark Horse? I have told everyone and certainly at the time told everyone, everyone at Image and Extreme knew it. Six guys in my office were huddled around me as I did it on speakerphone. Eric Stevenson, Marat, Dan, Richard Horry. I called John Byrne. I offered him $150,000 an issue to do Supreme in 1992. I wanted him to pick up after like the first six issues and take over. And he said, I've already done Superman. And he hung up on me. No, thank you. Well, Supreme was a, I've done an episode of that too on, on observations and, and very obvious, you know, all of the Superman archetypes. Supreme, like Hyperion, like Invincible, 
like uh like the Samaritan. I mean, there's 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 so many of we've all got a archetype that we wanted to do of Superman. So John's response here, when the guy goes, Did any of the image founders try to recruit you? He says yes, but they deny it. And that's when you go, Man, you're just in, in you're just detached because he knows and he knows that I've told everybody and I proudly um share with people how harsh he shut me down. So there you go. Re- the, 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 the addendum in this entire comic book feuds is John Byrne still taking shots at the toddler in 2019 after Todd paid him a compliment. I would love to ink a page of his. I would die a happy artist. And, to- and John saying, I love that I get to deny Todd, the toddler, dying a happy artist. So, hey, no judgment. It just is what it is. There's no embellishment. Those forums are public. You can find them. They were shared with me. I'm sharing with them with uh, with with. I'm sharing them with you now. And again, I hope you enjoyed this uh, kickoff to the new season with our comic book feuds. We'll definitely revisit them again soon. But we probably have to chill out and and uh, and, and take some time off because that was a lot of heat, uh, uh, a lot of fire being exchanged in these feuds. So uh, again, <laughs> it'll be a while. We need to we need to we need to cool off a bit. So the way that we do things here at Observations, for many of you, you're aware that at the end of the show, I read the reviews that you guys leave for me across the different platforms that share our podcast that you listen to the podcast on. And I am always so thrilled. Thank you for your support. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for the word of mouth that you've put out there, turning people onto the show. And I'm just so excited because, again, the greatest compliment I can get is when someone tells me that they love it because they learned something. And I have been uh, just so eager to share my passion with you guys, my clearly borderline obsession. But these reviews that you leave for the show are so helpful in positioning the show on the platform, getting us a higher profile. And I'm always humbled when I read the different responses that you all leave. Uh, and and we, we, we have a great one today uh, left by Marso. 2012, M-A-R-S-O, 2012. He says, uh, best podcast for history of comics. Best podcast for history of comics gives us five stars. Uh, He left this on Apple. It says, Mr. Liefeld is a well-known comic book artist, but I love his stories of comic book history. My favorite so far is the Jack Kirby podcast. His reviews of pop culture, including comics and movies, for individual years of my youth. I have met him at conventions with my son. He is also a very nice man. Wow. I am very touched, Marceau, that you took your time and you and you gave us this very generous review. I love the Kirby episodes too. The, 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 the magic in that man uh, is, is never going to be equaled. He was truly special and absolutely spectacular. Thank you, Marceau2012, for leaving this great review for us. You guys continue to spread the word if you like what you're hearing if you like uh the the kind of stuff the kind of content that we're putting out here again the comic book feuds they can't be denied these people committed these words to paper they shared these concepts these ideas sometimes they're ridiculously obviously arrogant and um and, and in some cases belligerent but i share them for entertainment and to give you a glimpse and again in this case it was the glimpse of how the industry had been really positioning themselves in their overall, I hate to say it, resentment of Image Comics throughout the 90s. I mean, the the John Byrne stuff that I 
have shared to you in previous episodes was 1994-95. This Barry Windsor Smith is 96-97. Uh, Image Comics arrived in April of 1992. This was a sentiment that grew over the time period, and it, it, it infects. It's a virus. And so I wanted to share this with you. Upcoming episodes are not feud episodes. So if you're like, I can't take another feud, good. You're going to enjoy uh, what we have coming for you down the way in a couple uh, really interesting comics, series, graphic novels that I am quite certain uh, maybe the first time you're hearing about them based on 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 all the stuff that I've been, uh, all the feedback I've been getting back from my fellow peers who are like, I've never heard of that before. So Thank you for hanging with us. Thank you for riding with Rob Observations. Hey, in between shows, I'm going to share with you right now where you can find me on social media. On Twitter, simple, at Robert Liefeld. I didn't get Rob Liefeld many 14 years ago, but I am at Robert Liefeld. I have the blue check, which is there for a verification. I appreciate it. And uh, that'll tell you it's really me. I love interacting with all you guys, sharing uh, photos, ideas, history, nostalgia, things that excite us right now. Uh, just thank you so much for following me over on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld on Instagram, my kind of personal, uh, photo dump diary. I am at Rob Liefeld. I got my name early enough. My wife said, you should be on this app. And I remember I was in the parking lot pulling away from Vaughn's and I was like, okay, I'll get on right now. Uh, at Rob Liefeld, tons of, uh, footage of, uh, you know, pictures of my life, what I'm drawing, what I'm doing, my family. I just, it's again, it's, it's, it's a hot mess, <laughs> but it's my mess at Rob Liefeld on Instagram is where you can find me. I have been on and will continue to be on an amazing new app called whatnot. Whatnot is a collectible app. When you sign on to whatnot, you get access to, it uh, looks like thousands of different accounts that have stores that have different things they're selling to you, whether it's toys whether it's manga, whether it's sports gear, jerseys, kicks, uh, watches. I am in the comic book and toy category. That's normally what you can find me sharing on Wednesdays and Saturdays when I go live. Uh, During my live feed, I talk the entire time to you. People have said it's kind of an extension of this show, and I uh, kind of just talk while we share uh, customized signatures. There's a, there's a number of different even signatures that I've developed while I've been on the platform for the last four months. Um, you'll, you'll learn what a Liefeld bloody chisel signature is, a drop shadow chisel. Trust me, this is all stuff that we've come up with on the fly, but it seems to be um, clicking. We have offered so many exclusives. Uh, right now, we have a really limited edition because we got a limited stock of, if you can believe this, a foil New Mutants 98. Uh, You can learn all about it on the Whatnot Show. I have artwork. I have signed toys, Funkos, uh, comic books. We have a number of different uh, exclusives that we've done with Whatnot. We did a New Mutants 98 facsimile exclusive that features Deadpool. We did a Brigade uh, uh, Reloaded uh, variant cover. We did a number of them. We did a uh, Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man uh, facsimile. So so we've done some direct, uh, only whatnot available exclusives. You can only find them with me on whatnot. And I am excited to share those with you. So so I'm Rob Liefeld on whatnot. Download the app. You'll you'll thank me because there's so much more to shop for when I'm I'm only on twice a week. Hope you can catch me and uh, and and see 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 the different stuff that we're sharing. A lot of auctions. It, it really is an incredible app. So many people dig it. I am so excited that I'm a part of it. So look for me on Whatnot. Over on Facebook, I have a group. I would love to invite you to visit with us. Rob Liefeld, 
Marvel Extreme and Beyond. That's the new name that we made for the club. Uh, myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, will be the moderator, the administrator that clicks you on through. I hope you can find us. There's uh, thousands of people posting every day, interacting, talking. Uh, it's not just my career. It's the characters that I've worked on, stuff that I've created, just stuff that I've only, you know, uh, uh, done work for hire on like GI Joe, uh, like the Avengers. So, so join us. It's a, it's a great party going on all the time. We have art contests. Everyone's sharing different memories, different stuff that they're digging even in the, in the right now of it all. So, so join us on Rob Liefeld, uh, Marvel extreme and beyond over at, um, Facebook. It's a group and I hope to see you there at the end of every episode. I wish you all the very best. And I hope that you are feeding your soul, your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual self. And you do that by getting away and having a good time, unplugging from this matrix that we have. I have a number of beanbags in my house. I I, I filled them all with fresh new beans that I got at the beanbag store uh, during the holidays. So they're really firm and uh, some of my family like them more smushy. I, I like to get them at full stack and then eventually erode them over time. And, uh, I, I sit down with graphic novels, with uh, books. The pandemic, I read all the Logan's Run novels. There's three of them, and uh, you know, or, or 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 favorite biographies, stuff like that. Just stuff that 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 I can escape and and read, and and uh, it, that's not my phone. Other times, I'm on the recliner. I'm watching great movies, great streaming. I'm doing it with a you know dish of ice cream with some you know fudge topping. I'm doing it with a peanut butter cup. I'm doing it with a cupcake. I'm doing it with a you know bowl of pasta, uh, some potato chips. What I'm telling you is go have some fun. Go have some fun. Get out from your norm. Spend it with loved ones. Eat great food. Read great stories. Experience you know as much fun as you possibly can to just feed that that part of yourself that's gonna that's gonna sustain you. And that is my wish for you because that is that that's what I'm doing. And trust me, we're still coming out of that crazy. Uh, I can't believe it's going to be three years since that pandemic. But because of that pandemic, I started a podcast, so it's kind of this double-edged sword. Trust me, the pandemic will start terrible. I'm not trying to. <laughs> there is no rosy outlook. I had, you know, the devastation of my kids from not being able to go to school will be something I will never shake. There's nothing about that pandemic that I favor, but I have to um, look at that it forced me in front of this mic and I am happy to share this podcast with you. Thank you again for listening. You guys come back around. We have so many fun episodes yet to share with you. I'll be here. Uh, circle back around the, the cul-de-sac. We most definitely, absolutely, inevitably are going to talk again real soon.